Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Well, it is a great privilege and honor to be with you uh, for this week. I appreciate the kind words from Pastor Ending, the invitation from him, from Pastor Nathan, to be able to come. Uh, it was in 2000 that my wife and I uh, traveled up to uh, New England. Uh, I'm from Washington State, just north of Seattle. My wife is from Colorado, uh, Longmont, Colorado. Now, we went to school, met in Greenville, South Carolina. Never did we imagine that we would end up in New England. Uh, we had all intentions of going out west and uh, coming back somewhere at least west of the Mississippi uh, to minister. And there was a ministry that was looking like it was going to be a good fit. We had spoken with the pastor and we were like-minded and it was looking really good. And then all of a sudden the bottom just fell out of that. And to this day, I have no idea why, but God used that. And then shortly after that, Pastor Endine called out of the blue. Never heard of him. <laughs> uh, Maine wasn't even on the radar uh, to go up there. And uh, we chatted, and uh, he asked if we would come up there for a few days, and which we did. We were traveling on ministry teams at the time. We had a short period of time to which we could visit and I think we were planning to be up there for, I think it was four days, and I believe that even got truncated by one because we got stuck in an airport overnight, I believe. And uh, so we had a very short time uh, to get to know each other, and uh, a few weeks later, he called and asked me to come. Took a flyer on me, <laughs> and uh, I was greener than a leprechaun, and uh, I really uh, was nervous to go up there uh, 3,000 miles away from my family, and about 2,000 for my wife's family at the time. And, uh, but God really used those seven years under his ministry uh, really to help shape my philosophy of ministry. I would say there's just a, a few guys that really are uh, uh, major influences in my pastoral ministry. Uh, Mark Minnick from Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Greenville. Bruce McAllister, who was the director of ministerial class at BJ, Bob Jones and Pastor Ending, and I so appreciate him and Judy, the investment, the time that they put into me and my wife and our kids, and uh, yes, then uh, in uh, 2007, got the call from Heritage Baptist Church, and uh, I've been there now for just about 16 years. Uh, so we've never dreamed we'd be in New England, and 23 years later, we can't imagine not being there. God has given us a heart for New England, for the churches there, and a part of my heart even in coming uh, to the Southwest is to perhaps plant a seed in some of you young men going into ministry that come out east, come out east. Uh, in New England, I keep track of churches that at least I know of that are without a pastor. That I know of, and there probably are more, but I think right now our list is about 15 churches. Uh, without a pastor in New England. And our church prays through that list once a month, and I try to keep that as updated as I can. But New England uh, needs pastors. Uh, 
Uh, church planting is good, and that's fine. But there's also churches that need a pastor, almost like a replant or revitalization for some of them. Uh, but uh, I, I praise the Lord for the opportunity to be there, but I praise the Lord for the opportunity to be here as well. been praying for these meetings for this week. Uh, our church uh, prayed for this this past Wednesday night, and I know several from my church are praying uh, this week as well for it. And uh, just praying that God would use his word to encourage us, to challenge us, and to really focus our heart as the uh, the sessions are called, heart focus, to focus our heart on something that would be most beneficial, uh, not just to start a new school year, but most beneficial for all of us in our Christian walk. I'd like to ask you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the first psalm. Psalm 1. I've chosen to speak this week on the theme of pursuing the good life. Pursuing the good life from Psalm 1. And tonight we're just going to simply try to focus on the question and answer the question, what is the good life? This psalm is an important psalm to consider. Puritan author Thomas Watson called it the Psalm of Psalms and the Christian's Guide. This is not just the first psalm in a, in a chronology of 150. Like we have in our songbook, you have the first hymn of however many hundred that are in there. This psalm is a foundational psalm for the Psalter. It is the psalm that sets the table for the rest of the psalms in our Psalter. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century Welsh preacher, writes, The first psalm is very interesting, and the authorities agree that it has a very real significance. It is undoubtedly a kind of general introduction to the whole of the book of Psalms. And the way I'd like to begin tonight is to have us all read this out loud together. I don't know if you do that kind of thing here, but maybe we will... See how it goes tonight. Really, the, uh, there's probably going to be a few different translations, but really there's pretty good uniformity in this psalm. So if you have your Bibles open or your phones tapped on to Psalm 1 or your iPads, whatever you've got in front of you, would you join me in reading uh, the first psalm together? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I want to encourage you, if you've never taken the time to memorize this psalm, to do so. If you're in the college, I'm going to really challenge you to memorize it this week if you've never memorized it before. 
We will read it several times. We'll try to quote it from time to time as well in our uh, sessions as we move forward. Perhaps you've already memorized this, and it would just be a refresher. But I want to encourage you to memorize this psalm. As I said, it is a very important psalm. The psalm opens with this word, blessed. It is important to know what this word is intended to convey. The word appears about 44 times in our Old Testament, more than half of which appear throughout the Psalms. It is translated blessed 27 times and happy 17 times. Now when most people today think of this idea of being happy, they generally think of happiness as some kind of emotional giddiness. Something that's even circumstantial in nature. We can use it in different contexts. For instance, I could say, it makes me really happy when the Seattle Mariners win a baseball game. And they're the hottest team in baseball right now. That makes me happy. It makes me happy when I get a gift that I've been wanting for a while. It makes me happy when it snows outside. Do you know what snow is in Arizona? It's a little white, fluffy stuff. We get a lot of it in New England. I love it. It makes me happy when it snows. Or it makes me happy when I eat a good steak or salmon meal. Today the Indians took me out for a really good steak. I was happy. We use happy in all kinds of different contexts. Sometimes if you're a social media person, I'm not a huge social media guy, but sometimes people say hashtag blessed, right? And it's just kind of used flippantly. This is more of a visceral or guttural kind of sensation, but it's not the kind that is meant to last for lengthy periods of time. This kind of emotional sensation is not what this word blessed means. This word blessed is not just another way, uh, uh, similar to say, I, I like it, it makes me happy when I eat a good meal. It is far beyond that. It is something far more substantial than any of those things that I mentioned before. What the word conveys is a kind of objective state or condition of well-being that is not contingent upon the circumstances, but is based on something more stable. And it always refers to a kind of person. Here in the verse 1, blessed is the man, a certain kind of man. Or Psalm 144, 15, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Or Proverbs 16, 20, whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. There's a state of blessedness that the psalm speaks of and which the entire Psalter points to. This first psalm speaks of this condition or state of blessedness. And the final psalm ends in this universal eruption of praise. There's some kind of relationship between this idea of a blessed person and the praise of God. The truly blessed person will spend his life on this earth and all of eternity in praise to God. One man writes about this word, no single English word captures the full sense of blessed. 
Those who are blessed are in a state of total well-being. The Psalms are about how to experience this profound happiness. But that's what we want to find out, right? That's what we want to know. How to experience this profound happiness. Psalm 1 is going to help answer that question. And we're going to talk about that this week as we walk through the psalm. But tonight again, just to try to answer this question, what is the good life? What does it mean to be blessed in a general sense from this first psalm? You know, people all over the world are looking for this. Everyone is looking for what, however they mean, the good life. What does the Bible say? Well, first, we want to look at what the good life does not mean. The good life does not mean, for instance, simply living the American dream. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson was tasked with writing what is called the Declaration of Independence. It's a key document in the founding of the USA. In that document, he famously wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In that statement, that forms the foundational ideas of what is called the American dream. But those things are still somewhat objective and left up to each individual to define. What makes one person happy may not make another person happy in this pursuit. And by happy, he seems to mean that it gives a certain sense of emotional or psychological delight. But again, that's not what the biblical word blessed or happy means. That's not the good life. Now we should be able to make that Link that the good life is not living the American dream. Because the Bible was written to all the world, not just to Americans. So we should be able to understand that the good life is possible, not just for Americans, but it's possible for people who live in places that are very difficult, like China, or North Korea, Russia, All these kinds of nations that we think of that are very oppressive, very difficult, they don't have the kinds of freedoms that we enjoy in our nation. But the good life is still possible for believers there, just like it is here for us. I think secondly, the good life does not mean merely living a moral life. There have been philosophers over time who have sought for the meaning of life and what it would mean to live a good life. Morality or virtue in a person's life are elevated by some as being key to the good life. It's important to be a good person on this earth, to be a good father or husband, to be a good mother or wife, to be a good individual. Morality is a universal principle inherent in every people group because it reflects the moral nature of God. 
goodness and evil are only understandable because of there being objective good in the one true and living God who is himself good. There is no objective morality if there is no God who exists. If you ask many people if they believe they're going to heaven, I've talked to many people like this, and perhaps you have too. Do you think you'd go to heaven? Well, yeah, I think I should. Well, tell me why. Well, you know, I've been a good person, trying to be a good father, a good, good husband. And besides, I haven't, what did Pastor Andy say this morning? I haven't killed anyone. <laughs> they think they're pretty moral. While morality is a good thing, and it is good to be a morally good person, that is not what it means to live the good life. A person who is living only for his moral goodness is living for himself and merely comparing him or herself to what he or she perceives in other people. No, the good life means much more than simply living a moral life. Pagans can live a moral life, but not the good life. I think a third thing it doesn't mean, the good life does not mean merely living a life of pleasure. You know, to live a pleasurable life is to live in such a way that pursues one's own enjoyment or pleasure. There's a big word that people use to describe the pursuit of pleasure. It's called hedonism. Living a life of pleasure means that one's desires to pursue what will bring him the most pleasure in life, which could be a lot of different things. For some, it could be great recreational activities or the benefits of high society, great material wealth, lavish living, big bank accounts, long vacations and short work weeks, and no responsibilities. And on and on it goes. This is the kind of mindset that frankly dominates Western culture, especially here in America. We are pleasure seekers, thrill seekers. People want the pleasure. It's almost like a drug. They live from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure, like it's a high and they have to go to work and why do people, why do most people work the five day work week? To get to the weekend, to have money to spend on the pleasures, on what will get them that emotional high, to get their fix of pleasure. They come crawling into work sometimes. Oh, it was a great weekend. They can't remember much of it. They think they're living the good life, but there's no way. Pleasure in itself is not evil. Christians do not despise pleasure, but pleasure is not a worthy thing to pursue in and of itself, nor is it something that is worthy of our worship. It will always be a fleeting pleasure. No, the good life has to be more than thrill-seeking and pleasure-hunting. Think a fourth thing that it doesn't mean the good life also does not mean just doing what gives one delight. This kind of emotional, personal happiness is what I'm after here. Just do what will make me personally happy. It's really coupled with the pursuit of pleasure. 
And while this is an ancient thought, it has ramped up in the past few centuries with the elevation and isolation of self over the group. I'm just taking care of me. I'm looking out for number one. I just need to do what makes me happy. That's all I'm responsible for. One's own personal happiness is more important than the welfare of the group. In fact, a person will often pursue what he believes will make him happy to the detriment of the group. For instance, hopefully this is not true for your family, but it is true for many. Sometimes teenagers can spend hours and hours playing video games on their cell phones or on their video gaming devices or on their, on their iPads or whatever they've got as far as technology and waste hours and hours doing that to the detriment of the family because that's what they think makes them happy. Or an individual on a sports team will fight for what he thinks will make him happy. We hear this every sports season. Some athlete is holding out for contract reasons. It's more money. I'm just doing, I gotta, I gotta take care of my family. They only make $30 million a year. I gotta take care of my family. I gotta do what makes me happy. What's gonna make me happy? To the detriment of the team. Or I've seen this as well. A father or husband pushes through his own agenda in the home thinking that will make him happy. He's not a loving husband. He's a domineering husband. And what makes him happy is when everyone bows to him. And he tears apart his family. The desire to enjoy even the emotional sensation of happiness is not wrong by itself. We want to be happy and find fulfillment in things like health or finances or family. There's nothing per se wrong with that. But there is much more to the good life than that. Again, the good life is not the emotional kind of giddiness or personal selfish delight. But I think another thing, the good life does not mean merely living a meaningful life. People want to do what they think will, uh, will matter. Is what I'm doing matters? Does what I do matter to anyone? Maybe you've wondered that. Is what I'm doing worth it? Is it worthwhile? Does it have meaning? And often real meaning is attached to having a family and raising children to live well. Sometimes meaning is attached to working some kind of job that is believed to make a real difference in the world. Sometimes meaning is attached to personal accomplishments. Sometimes it's attached to being devoted to some kind of great cause or community group. Christianity is definitely something about meaning. Christianity is the greatest cause of all causes. It's the cause of the glory of God. I've known people who believe there is more meaning and significance to what they do for a political cause than what they do in their normal Christian life. That is foolish thinking. B. 
being devoted to various earthly causes will not lead to the good life. True Christianity is all about living a moral life, a happy life, a fulfilling life, and a meaningful life. But simply living for those things does not make a person a Christian, nor does it mean they have obtained this objective state called the good life. For instance, President Joe Biden has devoted himself to a life of political involvement in our nation. No doubt about that. He spent decades. And no doubt in his mind, he is doing something that he believes is worthwhile. But can we really say that Joe Biden is living the good life? Okay, I know you're stifling your chuckles maybe a little bit on that one. No. Not at all. The man does not know God, to my knowledge. Another example, how about Pope Francis? Very religious man. Pope Francis, to my knowledge, lives a morally upright life and seeks to help the poor of this world. That is a noble cause. We would all agree on that. But that doesn't mean he has obtained the good life. Men like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates have done incredible things that have contributed to the betterment of men and women across the world with their technological advancements, and they've donated tons of money to help with great humanitarian efforts. I applaud them for doing so on a human level. But they're not living the good life. Numerous sports or entertainment celebrities make tons of money and have all the earthly pleasures that they want. But the vast majority of them are living for self. They're not living for God. They can have all the homes and all the fancy Uh, Glitz and glamour and bling and all the things that they can ever imagine buying. But they're not living the good life. Hopefully you get the point. Our world hunts for what will give them true satisfaction. A desire placed in their hearts by God himself. But they hunt for it in all the wrong places and reject the one place to find it. This is a problem for people in general. They reject God who is the source of the good life. And they instead pursue anything and everything else in hopes of finding what God alone can give. This is not new. People of Israel were guilty of the same thing. Jeremiah 2 verse 13, God tells his people, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The American dream, the pleasure-seeking, the moral lifestyle, the involvement in various earthly causes, none of it can give what only God can. None of it can replace God. None of it will lead to the good life. Folks, is this not the same conclusion that Solomon ended at in the book of Ecclesiastes. The mantra 
Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He had everything. The pleasures. It's all vanity. All kinds of stuff that he built. It's all vanity. His conclusion at the end of it all was what? Fear God. Keep his commandments. He finally got it. When you reach the end of your days, how will you know if you have lived a truly blessed life? If you have the opportunity to lie on your deathbed and reflect, what would allow you to say, I have lived a good life? For many people, would, the answer would have something to do with their family. See my kids grow up. I've got wonderful grandkids, maybe great-grandkids. We got to go to Washington a week and a half ago for my grandmother's 95th birthday. It was a little family reunion. 22 of us were there, four generations. I praise the Lord that my children got to know, have gotten to know their great-grandmother, a godly woman. Praise the Lord for that. But we know her days are limited. Is your good life, is your valuation of the good life going to be, well, I've worked a good job, I've stayed at the same company for 40 years, got a paid off home, took care of my family, didn't kill anybody, felt like it maybe, but (laughs) you didn't. Are those the kind of things that you're going to use to assess, I've lived a good life? There's the earthly meaning of that phrase that pagans will say. But folks, God wants us to live on a different level. From God's perspective, how will you know if you experience the good life? There has to be more than any of those things that we talked about before. Here in Psalm 1, I believe we have described for us the basic components of true blessedness, the good life. But its focus is not placed on things that are from this earth. The focus is on God himself. So secondly, let's consider what the good life does involve. Two things. One, the good life comes from a right relationship to God himself. This is the underlying thought of the psalm. But we have in verse 2, if you look in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This psalm essentially bookends with the focus on the Lord himself. And the blessed man is one who's rightly related to him. His delight is in his law, and he's known by God. You want to experience the good life, it is being rightly related to your creator. Back in 1939, Harvard began an intensive study called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. 
And they began tracing the lives of 724 men. It's a study that still continues today, not only with those men, but also with others around them. Harvard conducted interviews, looked at medical records and other things. The purpose was to study these various men and see what makes them happy and healthy as they go through life. Not a Christian study, but an attempt to study what makes the good life from a non-Christian perspective. A man named Robert Waldinger was the fourth director of the study, and he gave a TED Talk about it a few years ago to reveal their findings after 75 years. The study revealed one predominant and key idea, that good relationships in life are crucial to health and happiness. What we might call, or what they might call, the good life. Relationships are crucial. Good relationships. And the director gave three supporting ideas. One, social connections are key. Number two, it's not just having those relationships, but the quality of those relationships matters greatly. And three, good relationships help protect a person's brain. You can go online to YouTube and you can type in Harvard Study for Adults, whatever it's called, uh, the Harvard Study, and it'll come up. You can look on YouTube and you can watch that guy's TED Talk. It's fascinating. This guy said that relationships are crucial to a person's happiness. Perhaps we see this evidenced even in the Garden of Eden. God created man first, Adam. Then he said it's not good that man should be alone. He needs a helper suitable to him. So God created Eve to correspond to him, this personal relationship with someone like himself. Ultimately, Adam's greatest relationship was with God. That's the most important relationship a person can have. Relationships are an incredibly important aspect of humanity. And while the animal kingdom is able to interact with each other in certain ways, humanity expresses relationship in unique ways because we are made as image bearers of God. And the quality of our relationships matter. You know, with Christianity, it's not just a matter of a person saying, I know God. But really, it's a matter of the quality of that relationship that you say you have with your God. Just like in marriage, it's not just a matter of a person saying, I am married to so-and-so. What really matters is, What is the quality of your relationship? I've known people who've been married for 40 years and then got divorced. It boggles the mind. Longevity in marriage does not necessarily mean a good marriage. It just means you put up with each other a lot. The quality of our relationship with God is directly tied to experiencing the good life, true blessedness. If you say you've been saved for five or more years and you don't have the kind of thriving Christian life, you're not growing, you're not seeing fruit, you're not you know, growing in your relationship with God in a, in, a, in a meaningful way, then something's wrong. It's not God's fault. 
That's for sure. Chances are you're not doing what is necessary to cultivate that relationship with God. Or perhaps you're harboring known sin in your life. Or perhaps you're not even truly saved. Now when you read this first psalm, you find that the blessed man is likened to a tree planted by this river, right? You see that in verse 3. We'll take a whole message this week and talk just about verse 3. This tree is fruitful, it's robust, it's flourishing, it's thriving. It creates a picture in our minds of health, of stability, of growth, and of strength. Your relationship with God personally is of vital importance to the quality of life that you have on this earth. This is not just for college students. This is for every one of us who call ourselves Christians. If you look at Psalm 2, many people think that Psalm 2 is also an introductory psalm to, uh, along with verse 1. And there is somewhat of a bookend to, to those two psalms. Psalm 1, verse 1 starts with this word blessed, and Psalm 2, verse 12 ends, blessed are those who put their trust in him. But in Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, kiss the son, the eternal son of God, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. No one can ever have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. The Old Testament system pointed to the coming of Christ, the Messiah. And the New Testament tells us about Christ, the Messiah, and points our attention to him in full. It is only through God the Son, Jesus Christ, that a person comes to have a relationship with God the Father. Jesus died for us, the just one for the unjust ones. Praise God for his sacrifice. We celebrated that and commemorated that this morning through the elements of the Lord's table. It's not just a ritual. Jesus said, as long as we do that, we proclaim his death till he comes. We praise the Lord for the sacrificial death of our Savior. But if a person who says they, says they love God, but they reject Christ, they're not a Christian. And they don't really love God. The blessed life begins with a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our creator put each of us here on this earth to relate rightly to him. It is our sinfulness that keeps that from happening. But when a person turns from their sin and trusts completely and only in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they can be born again, reconciled to their creator, and be rightfully called a child of God. It's a wonderful thing. If your need tonight is that, then I urge you, don't wait. Turn from your sin and trust completely and only on Christ and be saved even tonight. <clears throat> As a Christian, the quality of your relationship to God matters greatly. Merely being saved is not the full story. Relationships must be cultivated and grown, and we have some responsibility in that. Again, think of it like a marriage. I've been married for 25 years. Many of you have been married longer than that, some shorter than that. 
you know a marriage takes work. It's got to be cultivated. One of the best things that my wife and I did before we got married was take a premarital counseling class from a man named Jim Berg. Some of you are probably familiar with him. The best thing we ever did. And we got married, and then we saw him after we got married on campus, and he stopped to chat with us, and he said, how's it going? You know, how, how's life in married, newly married couple? And we said, oh, it's great. We love it. And he said, you know, marriage is great. You realize how selfish you are, and it gets gooder and gooder after that. And if you know Dr. Berg, he's just a down home, and he's exactly right. People realize how selfish they are, and you've got to work on that. You've got to cultivate the relationship. You've got to work on things together. Folks, the same thing is true with God. Now, all the problems are our fault, not God's. But this relationship needs to be cultivated, which leads then to the second component of the good life, that the good life involves living in submission to God's word. And this really is made clear in verse 2. We'll spend a lot more time here uh, tomorrow But you look in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This is the only positive instruction about the blessed life. If you want to truly live a good life from God's perspective... You cannot do it apart from what verse 2 says. You've got to live in submission to the word of God. The scripture is vital to the Christian life. Some of you may wonder why pastors make such a big deal about your need to be in the word of God every day of your life. Speaking for myself, I was saved when I was 15 years old. Grew up in church, don't remember hearing the gospel, perhaps I did. But at 15 years old, I was invited to a youth meeting and this big six foot four, bald headed, deep voice guy got up there and preached the gospel every night. It was a week long uh, meeting and the Saturday night, it was just before my sophomore year of high school, he asked the question like he had done every night, if you were to die right now, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? Up to that point, I thought for sure I would because I grew up in the church, did everything a little Christian boy should do. But that night, the Spirit of God convicted me, Tegan, it's not what you have done that matters. I had never put my trust in what Christ had done. So that night, I got saved. After I got saved, I got involved in a Bible quiz team. I don't know if they have those down here or not in churches or uh, schools at all, but in our church, it's a Bible quiz team. We had several young people. We'd memorize whole books of the Bible, New Testament, and then we'd quiz over it. And we quiz other church youth groups. Wonderful thing. Got me into the scripture. Best thing I could have done as a new believer. But I didn't really have a devotional life until college. And that even took a few years to understand what that was, to really get any kind of regularity to that, to really develop that myself to any kind of degree. And the longer I've been saved, which is now just about 35 years, I have grown to understand I've got to be in the Word. 
if I'm not in the word, consistently, I am prone to wander, as the hymn writer said. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The word of God is vital to keep a believer on track for the Lord, to keep him on the right track, to keep him on the path of righteousness that the good shepherd is seeking to lead us down. The word of God is not an encyclopedia of life. It's not a coffee table book. It is a book that is meant to shape you, to chisel away what is unnecessary, unwanted, and ungodly so that the image of Christ can be seen more clearly. It is God, the master artist, doing incredible work in us. You're familiar, I'm sure, most of you at least, with the great artist Michelangelo. Michelangelo is known for saying about one of his statues, quote, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. Saw this block of marble in front of him, but he didn't see the block of marble. He saw the angel inside and just chiseled away all the unnecessary pieces until you could see it. That's a fairly decent illustration of what God is doing in us. He sees Christ in us. And God just desires to chisel away all the unnecessary things so that Christ can be seen more. And how does he do that? He does that by his spirit through his word. Does it ever occur to you that God has not finished shaping how he wants you to be as a person? That he has not done shaping how he wants you to think? That he's not done changing how he wants you to live? There are aspects of our being, our thinking, and our living that God still wants to change in our lives. Now, from a human level, we may agree with that and merely say to ourselves, well, I just got to do better, which you might, but it is so much more than that. We cannot merely do better in and of ourselves. There is personal responsibility involved. Again, like a marriage, if your marriage has problems, it's your fault. You need to repent and change things. But the broader picture is that it is more than that. It's devoting yourself to change in accordance with the word of God, being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God in you. The word of God is meant to shape who you are, how you think, and how you live. It's meant to shape every component of your life. To shape your marriage relationship. To shape your parenting relationship to shape your child-to-parent relationship, to shape your sibling relationship, to shape how you work, to shape how we worship, to shape how we go to school, our education, every part of our life. God wants to shape and mold to be more in alignment with what he desires. Many times we're too stubborn to allow God to do what he wants to do. God's word is the key to any kind of real success that we have in life. But if you're more devoted to doing your daily wordle or crossword puzzle or sudoku than you are being in the word of God, then you need to make some changes. 
If you're more devoted and desiring to listen to the voices of Tucker Carlson or Ben Shapiro or even Al Mohler than you are to reading the word of God daily and hearing God speak to you through his word, you've got to change something. If you're more willing to allow Fox News or Newsmax or whatever other news source to shape your thinking about this life and world than you are God's word, then you need to make some changes. Folks, if you want to live the kind of life that God blesses, if you want to experience the objective state of happiness and blessedness, if you want to truly live the good life, you will not stumble upon it. It does not happen by accident. You can't make it up for yourself. The good life comes when the person is rightly related to God through Jesus Christ and salvation and rightly submissive to God's authoritative and inspired word, the Bible. The problem is that many people don't really believe that. There might be some of you tonight that will listen to this message tonight, perhaps nod your head, maybe even say a muffled amen to certain things. But in your heart, you're thinking, yeah, right. Or there won't be any real tangible adjustments made to our daily living habits. You think to yourself that there is no way that kind of life is possible. You think that you're too busy for God's word. But those thoughts are not from God. They're defeating. God has provided everything you need. God has provided all the time that you need to spend in his word. God has put all the tools at your disposal to live the good life. You have salvation in his son. You're indwelt with his spirit. You've got the word of God in your lap and probably a dozen or more other versions at your, in your home. You've got the grace of God all grace abounds to you in all things. You've got a church family. You've got everything you need to live the good life as God sees it. So what is the good life? It is a life that is lived in a right relationship to God and his word. At the end of your life, it won't matter what house you owned, what cars you drove, how much money was in your bank account, what jobs you did, what charities you donated to, how self-righteously moral you were, how many friends you had, what accomplishments you made, the thrills that you experienced, the size of whatever ministry you may have, or the pleasures that you enjoyed. What will matter is this. Are you rightly related to God? And did your life show it through your transformation through the word of God by the spirit of God? If so, you can lie on your deathbed with nothing from an earthly perspective and say, I've lived a good life. I have God. I've done my best to live in submission to his word by the grace of God.
Folks, don't buy into this world's philosophy and ways of thinking. It can never produce what you're really craving. It can never give you true satisfaction in life. God created you for himself to have a meaningful relationship with him. And God is in all that is necessary for that to occur. And he has given us his word to tell us about that and to shape us into the kind of person that he means for us to be on this earth. The question tonight is, what do you need to change? What adjustment do you need to to, to make? What is one thing that you could do? Maybe you've thought about the good life in completely earthly ways, but not in God's way. Maybe you just need to say, God, help me, shape me even this week more and more to understand what is the good life from your perspective. Maybe you've listened to the world far too long and you've swallowed the Kool-Aid. Maybe you need to change that. Bend your ear to God's voice. Perhaps you need to get rid of something in your life that is detracting you from spending time in the word that you need to. Whatever the decision is, whatever thing you need to do, I trust that God will work in our hearts to submit ourselves to this truth that true blessedness comes through a right relationship to God and a right relationship to his word. Do what God wants you to do. Make the adjustments that God wants you to make by his spirit's help with his grace. And God will do great things with you in you for his own glory. Amen.